He's running late, you guys. Okay, come on. Come on. I don't even know why we're doing this. Okay. They're always out oh, my phone turning in. Oh, jeez. Really? Right now? No, we never even send out these pictures. I'm gonna be in the middle. Okay. You, Layla. You. Did you brush your teeth today? How's your hair? Okay, everybody together. One, Here we go. Smile. Two, Smile. Three. Gum. Once upon a time, when my wife Kim and I were first married, Christmas was a magical season. We were young and in love, and all the family obligations we had worked out just right. We would go to my family's house for our usual tradition, uh, a little fondue dinner on Christmas Eve, and then we'd open one present, and then we were off to church with her family uh, at Our Lady of Peace, and then from there uh, to the home of a friend of her family's where we'd have dessert. It was ice cream with some sort of topping that involved peppermint schnapps, I remember. Uh, and then we'd <laughs> meticulously open one present, at a time at her house and that family friend you see was a two-cheek kisser and so it always took a little extra time to get out of there with all the cheek kissing and whatnot but then we'd go back to Kim's family home there was a fire in the fireplace and we'd open some gifts and I remember thinking Christmas is perfect with this perfectly timed schedule we get to do everything that we want to do and what a romantic day I thought this will be to look forward to every single year from here on <laughs> and then, you know, I became a pastor with lots of obligations around Christmas, and then we had kids, and then our siblings had kids, and, and for the past 30 years, Christmas has been, well, let's say, less than romantic. Schedules are now unpredictable, different every year. Work obligations ebb and flow. If I can make it home on Christmas Eve after services are done, before all the food is gone and, and catch the, the opening of one present, maybe two, without being in a vegetative state on my chair, that, that's a win. And listen, I, I realize I'm no martyr. I know, I know some of you have similar situations on the holidays. One Christmas Eve, maybe a decade ago, Kim was particularly fed up about my schedule and about her carrying the load of Christmas all by herself, the baking and the shopping and the wrapping and the staying on top of everything and, and my overall absenteeism. And a tension had been building between us for weeks. And on Christmas Eve morning, as I was ready to head off to preach to the church, I stood on one side of our island in the kitchen and she stood on the other side and we had it out. She laid out her grievances, which were all valid. And at the end, my only comeback went something like this. I said, you claim to be doing all this stuff around here and you can't even clean up after yourself. The house is a disaster. The kitchen is a mess. Okay, can I just make a quick Christmas recommendation to husbands? Don't say that. <laughs> so, so the title of my message today is, It Looks Like Family, But We're Fractured. I mean, the holidays can really ramp things up at home. And so we're, we're in this series called Christmas Behind the Curtain. And we're taking a real look at our real emotions and, and sometimes crushing expectations. And today, a real look at family. See, see at Christmas, kids are off from school. Uh, older kids may be home from college. Uh, social obligations are in abundance. Everyone is busier and more stressed out and generally more agitated. Like, oh, we're having you know, dinner at my parents this year. We did yours last year. And why are you always running late? And I want to be on time. And wait, your sister's going to be there this year. And Uncle Jim Bob better not do that thing that he does every year. And I hope since last Christmas, those two have learned how to control their kids and taught them a little respect. And if I have to stand in one more line or wait one more traffic light, like road rage, here I come. You know, do any of these things sound familiar to you? And Christmas can be a recipe for incredible family strife. And so here's my big idea today, is to invite the light of Christ into your family this Christmas. Now, that sounds nice, 
But how do we actually do that? Well, we're gonna get there in a minute, but as a starting place, I wanna just remind you of this important truth. God's vision for your relationships, both with him and with others, it's a vision of peace and flourishing. You've heard us talk before around here about this Hebrew word, shalom. It's an ancient word that still has a voice today. Its simplest translation means peace. And so the ancient prophet Isaiah announced that there was one who was coming who would bring peace, everlasting peace. He would bring shalom. I I quoted in week one this prophecy from Isaiah chapter nine, and it plays prominently into Handel's Messiah that you've probably heard a few times. It says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. We remember the scene in the Charlie Brown's Christmas special. The angels came and they announced, you know, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace on earth. And the message from heaven on that first Christmas and every Christmas ever since has been that peace is coming. Peace has arrived. Peace is available to you and me. And this applies even when it feels like your family is fractured. Like you hear that word peace and you may think of an absence of conflict, that that's what peace means. But this idea of shalom goes much deeper than just an absence of conflict. It means a wholeness, a completeness. A theologian, Neil Plantinga, describes it this way. He says, shalom is the webbing together of God and humanity and all creation in equity and fulfillment and delight. Let's say it this way. Shalom is a universal flourishing where all our needs are satisfied and all our purposes are deployed under the ark of God's love. This shalom is what our fractured families need most this Christmas. And we can feel the longing even in the definition. So I wanna take us today to a passage in Colossians 3, 12 through 15. It's a passage that's gonna crescendo into this idea of relational peace. And it describes some of the characteristics that lead us to peace. And so you can turn to Colossians 3 in your Bible or device. Paul begins with this, uh, he begins this little section of scripture by reminding us of of a foundational idea. And the idea is that peace in the family begins with who you are in Christ. Peace begins with your identity in him. That's where Paul starts in verse 12 with who you are in Christ. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And so again and again, you'll hear Paul doing this all over the New Testament. He he says things like, you know, because you are this in Christ, be it. (laughs) Because you are this way, be this way. Which sounds like what philosophers would call a tautology. He says, because your life is hidden with Christ, live as if your life is hidden in Christ. Because here's what happens. If Christ is your life, then when somebody comes and criticizes you, you can be like, well, that stinks. You know, it hurts to be criticized. I don't like to be criticized. But on the other hand, my reputation isn't my life. And what that person thinks of me isn't my life. Christ is my life. And so what Paul is saying is be what you are. Take hold of what you really are and who you really are and and what you really have and live on the platform of that true identity. And so if you're God's chosen ones, if you're holy, if you are dearly loved, if you're beloved by God, well then act like it. Be who you are. 
Now, I should also point out that we're about to move into a positive section that that had kind of a negative setup. Paul has just reminded us back in verses 5 through 9 of Colossians 3 to take some things off before we put these things on. It's a clothing analogy. It's like changing clothes after a long, hard day of manual labor. He says, take off the dirty clothes, put on some clean clothes. That's how he describes this new identity, this new life in Christ. And so he says, you need to take off some things and put some things to death. And he's gonna list five of those things before our list of five positive qualities. And so he says, put these things to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. Those were part of your old self. But you have a new self now with a new identity. And it comes with new actions and new attitudes that you're clothed with like a a whole new wardrobe. I think these things can be very, very helpful in our family gatherings this Christmas. So again, look at verse 12, and I want to read the text to you. He says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And above all, These put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, notice he starts with your identity. And then he moves to a section that shows us how you work the gospel down into your real life. But it all starts with your identity. In fact, this description of the Christian life has echoes of the former passages in Colossians that deal more with Christology, the the descriptions of Jesus. And so the things that were said about Jesus personally are now being applied to us, his followers, Christians, which means little Christ. We begin to take on the character qualities of our Savior, the, the new person with this new identity who wears this new wardrobe of holiness is a person who is constantly saying, I am the righteous of God in Christ. And the effects are are right here in my life. Compassion. See, when you know that you're holy, it leads to compassion. When you know that you're loved, it leads to humility. When you don't know who you are, when you don't know whose you are, it leads to things like insecurity and anger and greed. But when you do know who you are in Christ, then you'll begin to see these new qualities work themselves out in your real life. And for today's purposes, work themselves out in your family. Again, I want to overlay our families onto the principles of this text before we dive into the specifics. So let me allow this quote from Russell Moore to set the stage. He says, over the holidays, some of you will be visiting family members who are contemptuous of the Christian faith and downright hostile to the whole thing. Others are empty nest couples who now have sons or daughters-in-law to get adjusted to. Maybe even grandchildren who are being reared well, not exactly the way the grandparents would do it. Still others are young couples who are figuring out how to keep from offending family members who are watching the calendar to see which side of the family gets more time on the ledger. And others are new parents trying to figure out how to parent their child when it's Mama Palooza at Aunt Judy's house this year. And of course, there's just always the kind of thing that happens when sinful people come into contact with one another. Somebody asks, when's the baby due to an unpregnant woman? Or somebody blasts your favorite political figure, or, well, you know. So so I wanna go back through our text today and frame it like this. This is the perfect outfit for a peaceful family 
Christmas. Paul tells us what kind of outfit we need to put on ourselves for this Christmas. And I don't know if you've ever had issues with Christmas outfits. Some of you have had issues with your own Christmas outfit, but with kids, there's something about getting kids in a Christmas outfit that can bring out the crazy. Then try to take a picture on top of it, like this one is from like 20 years ago in my family. Everyone looks nice, Aiden's going crazy, and you can see the crazy in those boys' eyes. (laughs) But there's a spiritual outfit that Paul is calling us to put on here in order to arrive at peace. He gives us five character qualities to, to counteract the negative ones that we took off at first. And so he says, first of all, put on compassion. This is a a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Let me ask you a question, and and this goes back to our our identity. If you know you are accepted freely by Jesus Christ due to no merits of your own, does this make you more compassionate or less? I, I would say it makes you more compassionate. Why? Because when you come across someone who's a mess, you can say, you know what, I was a mess too. And Jesus showed me compassion anyway. See, it comes back to this popular modern phrase that everyone is fighting a battle that you don't see. Your family members are fighting battles, some of which you don't know about. Your sister, your mom, your dad, your kids, your spouse. Everyone's fighting a battle. And if you know that you've been shown compassion, you can meet someone in their battle and have compassion for them instead of annoyance. This leads to the second one, kindness. Kindness is the action that arises out of empathy. See, in these times of deep division in our country, it's amazing to think about the power of simple kindness. It can take many different forms. Kindness can be a smile, a kind word, a a pat on the shoulder, an invitation to lunch, an offer of help, being truly present for just a moment, a listening ear. You know, many centuries ago, a certain young man from a rural setting went, went to live in a large city, and he fell in with the wrong crowd. He lived a wild and immoral life, which almost destroyed him. But one day he heard a preacher, and even though he didn't particularly appreciate the the, the preacher's preaching, he was struck by the man himself, and so he went to hear him again. And soon, that preacher was able to lead that young man to Christ. That young man has become famous since. He's known as the great St. Augustine. And this is what Augustine wrote about Ambrose, the pastor of the cathedral in Milan. He said, I began to love him. Not at first as a teacher of the truth, which I despaired of finding in the church, but as a fellow creature who was kind to me. Can you imagine the missed opportunity if Ambrose, the pastor, had not chosen kindness to that young man? The third quality is humility. Humility is the noble choice to use your status and influence for the good of others. I don't know if anyone here is into chickens. More and more people are raising chickens these days. Did did you know that chickens have a very rigid social structure by which every bird establishes who's dominant and who's submissive in every relationship to every other bird? Like dominant birds peck at the submissive birds. They pluck out their feathers. Many of them chase them away and steal their food. Submissive birds will not peck back. They will usually run from the dominant birds. Anytime a bird is added to or subtracted from uh, the flock, even if it's a bird that was already familiar to the group but had been temporarily removed and then returned, the entire flock will fight briefly to reestablish the social order and order of dominance and submissiveness. It's where we get our common phrase, the pecking order. Now, humans have pecking orders too. We also have this tendency to size each other up, to, to rank and file each other. 
And I would suggest that in humility, Jesus came to obliterate the pecking order. He said things like, the last will be first. He said try not, not, not to try to influence others through force and domination. Humility is what allows us to serve others without worrying about whether it's being noticed or not. A helpful quote is that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's raising others up. So what if you didn't have to be right on every issue discussed this Christmas? What if you didn't have to win every argument? Let me remind you that Satan wants to destroy you through his primal flaw, pride. And he doesn't care if that pride comes through, you know, looking around the family table and figuring out how much more money you make than your second cousin-in-law, whether it comes by, you know, looking around the table and saying, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that ignorant, you know, fill in the blank, whoever that person is. The end result is the same. It's devastating, soul-killing, relationship-destroying pride. Choose humility. The fourth quality is meekness. Meekness is, it's where all your emotional faculties are under control. I think meekness has been really misunderstood. Meekness does not mean that you're a pushover. It doesn't mean that people trample all over you. This word was actually used to describe great stallions, these incredible horses, that have been tamed. Meekness is strength under control. It is real strength, but it doesn't have to display itself. It doesn't have to show off how strong it is. It's what our Lord beautifully displayed. He, he's, he described himself as meek and lowly in heart. See, meekness does not mean that you're a stepping stool, but that you're in control, that you refu refuse rudeness and arrogance and harshness and anger and pride. The, the outflow, you see, of humble kindness is this Meekness, it's emotional control when you're dealing with others. But the reaction that humble kindness brings is our fifth quality. It's patience, which in this case means restraining yourself in the presence of the exasperating conduct of others. I love that definition. The, the, the word patience literally means here long-suffering. It's holding yourself back from flying off the handle when somebody really annoys you. And patience is kind of the negative side of the coin for what Paul says next. Patience is restraining yourself, but the positive side of it is when he says bearing with one another. Bearing with one another, which literally means to uphold and to support someone, to encourage someone. And so as we try to live this out, I, I believe the incarnation of Jesus shows us the way. Jesus is leaving heaven and coming to earth as a baby. It was a deeply relational move. Jesus says, you know, I want fellowship with you. And so I'm going to come to you and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to come to your turf. But think about it. When two people are different, when they come from two completely different places, and let's talk human to human now, maybe culturally or linguistically, how are those people gonna be friends? How are they ever gonna have a relationship? Well, one of them has to learn the other's language. And for a while, they have to speak in a broken dialect. They have to become vulnerable and weak. See, if you enter into another person's world, you become weak. The other person keeps the power but then you can have a relationship. You see, if you follow the way of Jesus, 
you're the one constantly saying, I won't work so much on being understood, but on understanding the other. I won't work so much on getting my needs met, but on meeting the needs of the other. I'm gonna work on entering into his or her world and then giving that person what they consider to be love, not what I consider to be love. Incarnation, if it's imprinted in you as part of your identity, if you see what Jesus Christ has done, Incarnation is gonna help you to embody these qualities as you head into your time with family and friends this holiday season. And so after Paul has laid out these five character qualities, he, he, be, he begins making some general statements about the kinds of things that, that hold them all together and the kinds of things that then result from this kind of life. Look what Paul says in verse 13. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So, so now we have our, our very first bit of practical application of these principles. Let me start philosophical before getting practical. Paul may intentionally be revisiting the same lessons from the parable of the unforgiving servant that's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. It's a story, remember, of a servant who owed a huge debt to the king. And when he went in and he pleaded his case, he was forgiven that debt. But then that same servant turned around and he was owed a very small debt by, by another servant and he ended up choking that person and demanding repayment. And in both cases, what Paul's saying in that gospel account, we learn that, that forgiveness first, it, it's, that it's utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy of being released, of being forgiven, to refuse to share that blessing with another. The second thing that we learn is that it's highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive someone who Christ himself has already forgiven. In other words, if Jesus has already forgiven that person their sins, I have no leg to stand on as I hold my little grudge against them. So what does forgiveness in the family really look like? Well, here's one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we don't air our grievances. We're not called to repress feelings of injustice or unfairness. We speak out about how we feel. But having done that, here's the thing, this is the point, having gotten it out, we forgive. We put it away. We cancel the debt. No longer let yourself think about it. This is what Christ has done for you. The Old Testament tells us that when we come to him, he casts our transgressions into the depths of the sea. And as Corey Ten Boom used to say, then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. <laughs> He's cast it away never to return. And so if you air it, but forgiveness means that you don't bring up that thing, you, that, that, that thing that you've forgiven that person for, you don't begin bringing that up again. You don't constantly harass them for, with reminders of the evil things that they used to do in the past. Some marriages struggle greatly, by the way, because the spouses not only get hysterical, they get historical. They go back and start dredging up the past, ready to trot it out and refresh it over and over and over again. But Jesus did not do this with you. The other thing forgiveness means is that you don't gossip about the thing with others. The temptation is to go around and to start building your allies and to tell them your half of the story. And it's all slanted in your direction. Where, where, where someone would have to be a moron to take the other side of what you're telling them and, and you're building your case and you're getting reinforcement. And here's what I'll say, it never works and it rarely helps. 
And so Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then he kind of wraps up this outfit that he's been putting on. He says, put on all these things. And then he says, put on, he almost treats it like an overcoat. Put on the overcoat of love. He says, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love completes the outfit. See, you're no longer the old person you once were. You have put that aside already. The past is dead to you, and so be now who God has made you to be. And it's only possible because of what Paul said at first. You yourself are dearly loved by God, and so put on love. And now we come back to this shalom, to this peace. This is the outcome of the life that we just described here. He says, and then let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. The peace of Christ will rule. This word rule here is interesting. It's the word for, it would be the modern equivalent of act as an umpire. Baseball, baseball fans know that the, the man in the black suit who stands behind the catcher, he rules on these plays. He makes the calls. He remains unruffled. And no matter what happens, managers curse him. They kick dirt at him. Fans throw stuff at him. Yet he remains unperturbed. That's the idea here. He's saying, let the calmness of Christ, the peace of Christ, rule among you. Now, I can already hear some of you objecting to all this. You're saying, but I'm only one person, and I try my best, but it takes two to be at peace. And that's very true. And so Paul makes this clarification over in Romans 12, 18. He says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, you can't control the other person, but you can control yourself and what, and what you do. You can control your tone of voice. You can control not assuming the worst about them. You can control actually giving them the benefit of the doubt. You can control not turning to gossip or slander. You can control choosing to pray for that person. You can control speaking kindly to them and about them. As far as it depends on you, he says, live at peace. The other person may not be willing to reconcile. They might not be ready to resolve things. You don't control them. You only control you. And as far as it's up to you, he says, do everything in your power to be at peace. Now, I need to say one more thing here. Living peaceably is not the same thing as being an enabler. If someone is headed down a wrong path, you speak truth to them. If they're doing stupid things, you be honest to them. You don't say, well, the pastor said to live peaceably, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. No, that falls under speak the truth in love category. But here I'm talking about petty offenses that many of us need to move on from. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the outflow of being who you are, your new self in Christ, and putting on these five things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So I'd ask, what does that look like for you to put that outfit on this Christmas? And I recognize for some of you today that that sounds like a little bit of a pie in the sky thing. You're like, Derek, <laughs> you know, if you could come to my family gathering, you wouldn't be talking this way. Like my family, we're too far gone. We're too dysfunctional. Can I just share with you a quick survival guide for the dysfunctional family at the holidays? Let me offer just some practical recommendations. The first is just keep it simple. Keep it simple and use nostalgia as a connecting point. You don't have to solve all the world's problems at your holiday dinner. You, don't, you also don't have to lead everyone to Christ and do an altar call at the end of it. Keep it simple. Put on these character qualities that we just talked about. And often a great point of conversational connection with others is shared nostalgia. Remember back to when times were good. 
Here's the second. It's to manage your expectations. Miracles aren't going to happen at every turn. The goal is to have some good moments, some good interactions, not to heal all past sins, prepare for people to be the same as they always have been, and be pleasantly surprised if there's been some progress. Third, consider your boundaries ahead of time and be ready to enforce them. So are there people that you can, that you can only handle in small doses? You know, is there an amount of time that, that you spend that's just right before you start to, to lose your cool? Are there topics that will push you over the edge? Think about these kind of things ahead of time, know yourself, and have a plan in place to set some limits for when they happen. Next is don't try to control everything. Be flexible. Like you're in charge of how you feel and behave. You can control very little else, and so don't try to, as far as it depends on you. Next is debrief with a trusted friend or a counselor. So maybe plan some time after the holidays to meet up with a trusted friend or a confidant or a, or a therapist to decompress from your time. This, this is something that you can look forward to through the holidays, and it's a reminder that your family isn't the total picture of who you are. Finally, be the change that you want to see in your family with no expectations that they'll come along. Like you don't have to ram your way of life down anyone's throat. But you also don't need to show up for every argument. You don't have to cure every dysfunctional cycle. You don't have to break every relational pattern. If you're able to embody Christ and the qualities that we talked about from Colossians 3, you're going to begin to set an example for how other family members could counteract the dysfunction that has encompassed your family for many years, maybe generations. You know, there's a phrase that I've talked about before, but I think it would be, be great to adopt here again as I close. It's just a declaration, and the de declaration says, here's my chance. And this is what I mean. Over the next couple of weeks, through Christmas and the New Year, somebody's going to hurt you, and your natural instinct is going to be to hurt them back. Or maybe your instinct is to run away and pretend nothing happened. Instead, what you're going to say is, here's my chance. My old self says to get revenge, but here's my chance to choose blessing. My old self says that I'm right and they're wrong, but here's my chance to choose humility. My old self says that I should blow my cool, but here's my chance to be kind. My old self says that I should gossip and, and build my case behind their back, but here's my chance to live at peace. Here's my chance to live out my faith. Here's my chance to depend on God. Here's my chance to live out my identity in Christ. Jesus, I don't know what to do. I, I'm going to pray for that person. I don't I don't even know what to do or say in this moment, but I will have the courage in your strength and with your help to try to embody Colossians 3. So here's my chance. And the situation is going to present itself, and you're going to have to make a decision whether it's going to bring out the best of you or whether it's going to bring out the worst of you. And the most difficult situations to handle usually are when you're being attacked. And instead of reacting, you're going to think in your mind, Here's my chance. And listen, for those of you here today who, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, I don't mean to be negative, but, but without him in your life, there is no chance at this kind of peace-filled, forgiveness-rich lifestyle that Paul laid out for us today. It is only possible with a brand new identity in Christ, a new self that, that's not something that you can manufacture but it's an outcome of, of the grace and mercy of God in your life. And for you today, your greatest need this Christmas is not to have your broken marriage healed. It's not to restore the relationship with your mother. It's not to be a better parent, you know, a better parent to your kids. As important as all those things are, 
They're not your most important relationship. The only way that peace can happen there is if you're living at peace with God. And for some of you, that's your greatest need today. You've wandered away from God. You've sought refuge in your own path instead of God's path. Your rebellion and sin have turned your heart you know, to seek meaning and comfort and temporary pleasures instead of lasting peace and security in him. Your relationship with God is what must be restored first. And praise God, it's possible. No matter who you are, and no matter what you've done, it's possible because Jesus purchased your forgiveness at the cross. And if that's your biggest need today, this could be your greatest Christmas ever. You can choose today to make peace with God. And so I don't encourage you not to leave whether it's a site or your device or whatever, without reaching out to somebody about taking a next step. Send an email to the church. Come down for prayer following the service if you're in one of our locations. Go to whoisgrace.com forward slash next if you're watching online or on TV and choose salvation and just let us know that you took that step. I wanna make one final appeal today. In just a few days, we're hosting a Christmas Eve service for our whole city at the Warner Theater. If you live in Erie, we have four different services on the 22nd and 23rd. You may not have an easier ask all year to the people in your life who are far from God. And so I wanna urge you one more time, invite them. The gift of introducing someone to the God who loves them is the most important gift that you're gonna give this Christmas. So spend some time praying and planning and considering and then inviting. Now, in our physical locations today, we're gonna to create some space to reflect and to meditate on the truths that we learned today in a time of solitude. I love you guys.